0: Here we here we here we go Ha yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm knocking to the bank with it Are you are are you Are you ready to get 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 down And welcome to the Antisocial Comedians Club What's happening everyone you're listening to the Antisocial Comedians Club as always doing the introduction, it's me, Lewis Taylor, and today for the introduction, I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Lee Askell. How do we? <laughs> um, yeah, so today's episode is a fucking dream come true for us. We've had the incredible Australian comedian, producer, TV presenter, radio host and podcaster, the absolutely fantastic Will Anderson. Um... Well, we talk about everything, don't we, mate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We cover uh, PC, comedy, we cover comedy, him growing up on a dairy farm, Um, stuff he got up to as a radio presenter, Um, also giving us absolutely incredible advice on being stand-ups and progressing in this industry. Genuinely the nicest human being on the planet. I mean, this guy's ridiculously... Famous. Like we're talking A-list Australian celebrity, so for him to give us just the time of day is fantastic. Um, as always, like, subscribe and share.
1: What's our social media? Social media, find us on CC
0: Instagram. We've got Twitter, haven't we? We do Twitter. We are going to start doing more stuff on social medias. We're loving all the interactions we get from you guys. We love the support and you know all the kind things you send sending in to us hopefully we can carry on making these we love making them um, the podcast going from strength to strength and it's all because of you guys so thank you so much and if you know anybody that's stuck in a wheelchair why don't you park them on the top of the stairs put the brake on and put the podcast on in the house um, they might starve to death but we could do with the listeners <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, as always guys enjoy the episode thank you so much for listening love you Bye. sorry we're having some technical problems we uh, our normal camera doesn't work so we've had to swap, up, swap over to the laptop camera
2: no worries um no it's all good it's the modern it's you know look it's pretty great that technology allows us to do this sort of thing and then it doesn't quite allow us to do this sort of thing is what I've tended to find. Yeah, (laughs) but it's still cheaper than the five grand
0: it would cost us to fly over to you, so yeah, still very (laughs) grateful.
2: (laughs) Plus, we're not letting people in the country. That's it, yeah. yeah, Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm not not swimming from Bali, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how are things over there now with everything that's going on? Uh,
2: Well, we're having a little second wave. You know, Some places haven't had a second wave yet because their first wave hasn't finished, uh, basically. I think Donald Trump promised there wouldn't be a second wave in the US and he's doing a pretty good job of making sure that the first wave just keeps getting bigger and bigger. (laughs) Um, We've opened up a little bit more here. You're seeing a lot of footage of, but you know, there's no vaccine and there's still some people who've got it. So it's yet to be seen how well that goes. But the aim is, you know, they they had 8,000 people at a football game tonight in Brisbane and you know, the, the aim is that they, you know, are hoping that they will have crowds back to most things in September, October. But let's see how it goes.
0: Oh God. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're just, we're shut down. Well, we're still, we're supposed to be opening back up next Saturday for pubs and restaurants and stuff. But it's a bit touch and go at the minute because our problem is because we've had hot weather for the first time in 20 years. Everyone's going down the beach.
2: I, I did see the photos. Yeah, uh, yeah. everybody at the beach, <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, it, if it was a nice beach, maybe, but geez, it yeah, was Bournemouth, really...
0: Bournemouth.
1: It was Bournemouth, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah, it was not a nice beach at
2: all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, though, your your second wave started because of one of ours coming over. They opened up the uh, the um, for immigration, and that. and that. I mean, I'm I'm actually doing my visas at the minute to come to move to Perth. Fingers crossed, lovely like right. family. Nice. Uh, yeah. So, uh, long story short, I'm on. I'm on a group on Facebook, and apparently, it was actually an English person that came over that got tested at the airport, and that's made them shut the uh, borders again.
2: So, it wouldn't be the first time an English person came to Australia and fucked it up for people. So, <laughs> I guess it's on true, brand.
1: True. True.
2: So, we, we, we were talking.
0: Um, I mean, obviously. I know you more as being a stand-up, but you do everything. Um, (laughs) I mean, you're known as a radio DJ, TV
2: presenter. You've got—is it you? have three podcasts. Uh, Four, four, actually. I have an entire imaginary radio station. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's hard to get someone to say no to something that you do for free. No one can. No one can fire you. So, (laughs) yeah, I have four. I have um, a podcast called Toefop. We just celebrated. Oh, well, actually, on Thursday this week we celebrate um 10 years that'll be 10 years of us doing that just me and my friend charlie have been doing the show for 10 years back when people always go what's your podcast about and i was like yeah it's from the time where it didn't need to be about something it was just good enough that you had a podcast yeah, that yeah. Was, that's what it had in common people were listening just because it existed rather than for any particular reason and then is that Charlie yeah, from believe, home and away yeah so yeah. he went he went to home and away yeah and so then then they wouldn't let him do the podcast for a while because uh they did not think the tone of discussions we were having on the podcast was suitable for an actor who was on home and away so then i started this spin-off podcast called faux Faux, fop and uh like with just other comedians and anyway i've done like nearly 300 episodes in fact the next episode is episode 300 of that and um that's really just the that's just the side project that's the um, you know the spin-off and then I have this show called Philosophy, which is kind of an interview show I guess it's like, you know, it's kind of an interview show It's mostly a conversation about things that we find interesting with like celebrity and comedian type people and That is quite popular. Like people seem to really like that show and then I have this like bizarre Australian rules football cup podcast called two guys one cup an AFL podcast which Charlie I, listen, and I, I do listen do. to
1: that to be honest because I'm a West Coast
2: Eagles fan <laughs> for all my sins. So. Uh, so Charlie and I started that because the name Two Guys One Cup uh, is because both of our teams, when we started it, had only won one premiership in the entire existence of the league. Both the teams had been in for 100 years and they both only ever won one cup, right? So that was what bonded us. Different teams, but we you know, both barracked for these teams that had been historically unsuccessful. And then in the first year we did the show, my team won the premiership. So it really fucked up the name of the podcast for a start and kind of the conceit of the podcast because our whole relationship was suddenly out of balance because we'd bonded over the fact that we were both losers and then suddenly I was a winner. It was weird. Because <laughs> I
0: first got to grips with you because I listened to Faux when you had Bert Kreischer on. That's the first one I listened to. Um, yeah, yeah. But then yeah, I listened so, to Bert, Mark uh, Abram's yeah. podcast that you were on
2: yeah. And then I found out about w- Philosophy. So, yeah, well, I w- I lived in LA for 10 years on and off doing stand-up over there. So a lot of those you know, dudes were just people that you met on the stand-up scene over there and you did shows with them. And, and so I was doing this show and, and Dave Anthony in particular from The Dollop was like, he's just a, a good friend of mine. And then he kind of knew all these people. And then suddenly... You kind of forget because I'm just like a, you know, I'm, I'm a kid from a dairy farm in Country Victoria, like it was a comedy nerd who ended up being a stand-up comedian for a living, and then suddenly I'm at the, you know, the watching the new Mad Max movie at you know, at the Chinese theatre, you know, in LA with fucking Patton Oswald. You're like, what's going on in my life?
0: <laughs> no, so that, see, that's one thing I wanted to talk about because you do talk on stage about being from a, a dairy farm, and didn't you love, live? somewhere where the population was like 500 or something.
2: 250 really small. people. 250 people last census, Denison in country Victoria. It's a, far, a dairy farming community.
0: So how did you get from that to, yeah, how did you get from that to go into the cinema with Pat and Oswald?
2: Well, I, I don't know, but here's what I'll tell you. Like, have you ever milked a cow? Have you ever had to get up at five o'clock in the morning and milk your cow? No, <laughs> no, I can honestly yeah. say that I haven't. So, you'll do anything in life just not to have to do that <laughs> you know it turns out it was like Patton Oswald watching you know Mad Max in 3D but as it turns out I would have done absolutely anything just not to get up at five o'clock in the morning and milk cows for living.
0: so how so going from that then how did you like how did your all introduction into stand-up happened because obviously being in a dairy farm 150 people your your material obviously couldn't have been so i was milking a cow the other day and you know what that's
2: like (laughs) well funnily enough when i first started doing stand-up because i I was in melbourne you know which is kind of the home of stand-up in australia or like less so now because you know uh, everything is so spread out now but originally if you wanted to do comedy in australia you were just like, well, Melbourne is where comedy happens. So I might as well go to Melbourne and, you know, see what happens. And I'm in Melbourne and I was like, what is my point of difference? What is it that I can talk about that? And I was surrounded by all these kind of cool young, you know, comedians with all these cool young references and whatever. And I I did talk about dairy farming quite a lot earlier. <laughs> like a lot of my jokes were about growing up on a farm because it was the thing that everybody seemed to find quite, quite fascinating, particularly because I didn't really present as somebody who, would know how to milk a cow,
1: Um,
2: (laughs) you know, so I, um, I mean, I'm a vegetarian, you know, and I'd probably be a vegan, but you know, my parents are dairy farmers and I've disappointed them enough, you know, (laughs) it's really, you know, I've gone about as far away from it as possible, so, um, but no, for me, it was, I just liked comedy, so there was this Australian TV show called The Big Gig, And um, it was kind of like a Friday night live or whatever that show used to be called, like a big, you know, a variety, like the, not like the American Saturday night, like a, a live stand-up, you know, cabaret variety comedy show. Yeah. Um, And it was um, on a Tuesday night on the ABC and it was full of incredible acts, like uh, Wendy Harmer and the Doug Anthony All-Stars and like all these like brilliant you know comedians that i had never heard of before and i'm like 13 or 14 living down on a farm and at that stage the only comedy we ever heard would have been a couple of monty python python albums we would have heard um there's this, this is an australian guy who i don't know if you guys are familiar with or not called kevin bloody wilson do you know who he is uh, yes yeah, i have yeah. seen. yeah I've, I've heard of him yeah he's um like a kind of um, almost like a an australian roy chubby brown or something yeah. like that right like like, he, he sings bawdy comedy songs, like, you know, with titles like Rootin' in the Back of the Ute or, you know, Do You Fuck on First Dates? Yeah. And, you know, like, Hey, Santa Claus, You Cunt, is one of his most famous. <laughs> 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 like But, you know, every Australian kid would have had, like, a, a Kevin Body Wilson, you know, tape. Like, completely politically incorrect by, you know, today's standards, but, you know, funny for a 13 and 14-year-old kid to be listening to. Um An Australian mimic like a, 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 he would mimic cricket commentators. His name was Billy Birmingham. He went by the 12th man and he would do these fake cricket commentary albums that were comedy albums that were incredibly popular in Australia. And then it was like Bill Cosby. Yeah, that hasn't dated well. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Billy Connolly. So Billy was the one for me. And so I had a whole bunch of Billy Connolly albums and I absolutely loved them. And so when I was um, 17... Uh, my mum took me to see Billy Connolly in Melbourne, a place called Hamer Hall, 3,000 people. When I was 17 years old, we went down from the farm, you know, three hours, you know, in the car to get her down to see Billy Connolly. Never been to a stand-up show before. Don't really know what stand-up is going to be at a show. Like, surely it can't just be some dude standing on stage talking for three hours, can it? (laughs) like you know like we've we've paid like a 100 bucks for these tickets he's not just going to stand there and talk for three hours is he is like we all talk for free every day is he that much better at talking that we're going to pay him a hundred dollars to hear him talk when we can't get people to shut the fuck up in our everyday life (laughs) yeah apparently (laughs) so i remember sitting in that room and i honestly thought this is the greatest form of entertainment i have ever seen in my entire life Like, because of all those reasons I just said to you, because there was a giant theatre with 3,000 people aged, you know, 10 to mid-80s, I bet. Like, his audience is so, you know, just everybody loves Billy Connolly. And this is, you know, um, I I guess 25 years ago now. So, like, you know, Billy Connolly at the height of being Billy Connolly too. Super famous, but still a super great stand-up comedian. And I remember he just walks out on stage and there's a stool And then he just talked for three and a half hours. And for three and a half hours, every single person in that room just thought they were at the greatest show they had ever seen in their entire life. Like like people who, if they ran into each other in the foyer, wouldn't think they have anything in common, anything that they could talk about. And yet they were all joined in unison in the laughter of laughing at the same thing. And as a 17 year old kid, there was just something about the fact that all these I was like, I got even then, that that's the show. Like the show isn't what the comedian does on stage. Yes, that's part of it, right? But the show exists without the audience. I could you know, do my show just out the back of the house here to the dogs and that's actually the show, what we call the show. But that's not what the show is for. The show is for creating that feeling with an audience, getting 3,000 disparate people and then being able to combine them together in a moment that they all experience at once and they're strangers and this guy up the front has just done that with his words and his stories and I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life and he would start these stories and then you know weave them all back in and it all came together in the end and I remember sitting in the room that night and just thinking whatever this is this is the greatest thing in the entire world but then because I was a kid from a dairy farm and yeah you know, that was the first I've ever seen stand up I then went away to university and became a journalist because I didn't know that a stand-up was a thing that, like, how do you do that? Like, I couldn't, it's not like, you know what I mean? Like, how do you get from sitting in my chair to being Billy Connolly up on stage doing that? I had no idea how that would happen.
0: I, I, I was a bit like that because I come from a working class family and it was nev- nobody in my family, there was no musicians, artists, anything. They were all bricklayers, builders, stuff like mechanics. And then it was that thing of, but, but as a kid, you don't, it doesn't occur to you that it's something you can do. You think it's set for people earlier on. And then as I grew up, I was like, oh no shit, anyone can do this.
2: Anyone. That's the real thing about it. Like anyone can do it. I was going to say, all you need to be able to do is talk, but you don't even need to talk. You, you could be a mime. You could do physical stuff. Yeah. Like anyone, anyone can do it. it and, and that's why, you know, sometimes when the industry fails a little in its inclusiveness, you know, and there's been some pretty prominent stories of that of late, you know, about it's incredible that our industry can be not inclusive because it is the most inclusive of all jobs that you can possibly do. No matter what your life experience, no matter where you come from, no matter what your, you know, particular capabilities as a speaker or not as a speaker, stand, you can find a place in the stand-up comedy world. It should be celebrated for the fact that it's something that literally anyone with any life experience could actually do.
1: Yeah, there's a guy over here, um, the deaf guy. You know, the deaf guy. He's on. It he was on Britain's Got Talent. He's uh, he's big um, on the scene. He can't. He, he's he can't speak. He does. He does. Can't I don't name know name. how he does it, but he does. He's like a Stephen Hawking. Yeah, he has basically. the uh, screen. He's got list. a screen. Yeah. So so like he does his material on the screen. People love it. The no words guy. That's what it's called. Yeah. It? No, is, that, is that No yeah. words guy. Yeah. So it just shows you can do anything. Anything.
2: It's possible. it. That is absolutely incredible, though, isn't it? it like yeah. I mean, the yeah. fact that. You know, that even there, you can find a way to do it and like connect with an audience and connect all these people to a person and a story and an experience. That in, in what other way are you hearing from that person and what their life view is and what their worldview is? Like, I have learned so much about like different types of people and their backgrounds from being in stand up comedy clubs, hearing somebody talk about what it was like to grow up where they grew up or what it was like to go through what they've already gone through. It's its it, like, it's an incredible education if you just listen to people's stories too. Mm.
0: It's, it's the ultimate view of perspective as well. It's like Richard Pryor, his mother was a prostitute. He grew up in the projects, extremely poor person. Now that's not necessarily relatable to everybody but it's still funny because it's his perspective. It's his life story. It's, it's an interesting, listen.
2: I must admit that there is a- occasions where I have said to my parents, like, "You could have locked me in a cupboard or something." Like, you know, they are pretty <laughs> nice, straight up and down, ordinary people. I've done my best to wring some material out of them, but they haven't really presented me with a lot. I've got to be honest with you; it's not a Richard Pryor backstory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I do that. I do a joke about being because uh, I, I went to Catholic schools growing up, and I always joke about like, "Oh, I want to talk about going to Catholic schools." Don't worry, I wasn't touched, but. It's a shame to make much more money if I was.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I had a, um, it's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? But it's. uh, there was a teacher at our school who um, later was up on charges and uh, I was his favourite pupil and like yet not a pass. And I know that's something that I should feel like pleased about as an adult. But I was like, for my comedy career, it wouldn't have been that bad. That might have (laughs) been my nanette.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not one of the things you want to go and see him in prison and go, what was your problem? I was a stunner. (coughs) What? (laughs) Did I talk too much? Did I
2: wear the wrong clothes? What was it? I mean, go and see him in prison and go, look, mate, just between you and I, can we fake some stuff up? I just really need a new special. I know you're going to get an extra 20 years on your sentence. You're in for life
0: anyway. Come on. We might as well make some money out of this. I'll give you 10%. 10%
2: 10 is pretty good to spend in prison. That's a lot of cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs)
0: commissary so, for days so like what i mean at the minute we we were talking about this the other day how's the um whole pc culture going over down over there um, in australia because i know there are a lot of people that are getting it's very woke at the minute from what i can tell over there
2: yeah i think well it's funny isn't it it's, it's such a interesting conversation This because like often when it's represented in the media for example you know there's, there's this big debate in australia at the moment about the death of the larrikin and what they really mean is like, where's Paul Hogan? You know, that's what they really mean. Whenever anyone in Australia says Death of the Larrikin, what they're really talking about is mostly Paul Hogan. They're just like, why aren't all modern comedians still Paul Hogan? We just like Crocodile Dundee and Frond Shrimps on Barbies. And there were simpler times where a white man who built the Sydney Harbour Bridge was also our best comic in our country, you know, like, so <laughs> there's that. Then there's the other stuff that we're seeing at the moment, which is that erasure of things that have come previously, right? Like, so at the moment, there are a lot of, you know, TV shows all over the world who are saying, we're pulling down this episode because of the content in it. We're pulling down this episode because of the content in it. And um, the the biggest example of that in Australia is obviously Chris Lilly, who's done a fair bit of blackface in like his TV shows. And they were very popular here in Australia. And so that's caused um, a fair amount of, debate around it. And it's a really interesting topic because I think it's good that we're not doing that sort of stuff now. I don't, I don't miss it. I don't, I'm not one of those people who sits around going, you know, I always think that comedy is coming up with new things to talk about, right? New and interesting things to talk about. So the idea that you want to go back to anything that's old fashioned, you know, like that that old sort of like racial or sexual stuff interests me in the same way as somebody talking about fucking aeroplane food being bad interest mm-hmm. me the topics have been done unless you have some new and unique and interesting take on those topics and chances are if you do you're then somebody doing non-politically correct material but just from a different like a more modern perspective right yeah. and you still see plenty of that like you still see so many people who are working with those same themes and topics and making comedy that is as edgy and outrageous and whatever but it's just done from a different perspective. Now. The one about getting rid of the old episodes though, this is where it gets tricky, I reckon, because it happened, right? Yeah. Like it happened. Like there are schools in America at the moment who are, are thinking that they're not gonna uh, run To Kill a Mockingbird because it uses the N-word. To mm. Kill a Mockingbird is one of the greatest stories in history about racism. It's about racism. It's not a racist like play, it's about racism, right? Yeah, you yeah. can't have it without that there. To erase that sort of historical document you just go well it's what happened it was the time i have no problem with this kind of idea that maybe warning people you know if there's people who don't want to see that sort of stuff these days then having that sort of stuff they have the you know, this is from a different time it contains you know blah blah and blah blah that you know some people might be offensive but i don't agree with the idea of just erasing it and pretending that it never happened in the first place because how do we know where we've come from if we can't look back on where we actually were we've just erased everything that came before and we're like well we've arrived at this magical point where we're not doing that stuff but now we're pretending we didn't do it in the first place and that to me that's where i tend to have a problem with this idea of pulling all the stuff down and and you know taking it away i just think that's almost worse than having done it in the first place Yeah,
1: yeah it is it is i mean um the talking about that um they're not going to take Roots down either, you know what I mean? I learned a lot from watching Roots and watching 12 Years as a Slave. I, knew, I never knew nothing about slavery until yeah, I watched this them films. The
0: other, yeah, because they, they're also saying about it, with the slavery movies and stuff like that, there are young people that are using words and terminologies from them films and abusing them. But they're 18-plus films. Kids shouldn't be watching them anyway. No. And it's like, uh, going back to what you said about Killer Mockingbird, they've had the same problem with Huckleberry Finn. Um, right, in- they use this, they use the M-word repeatedly because it's one of the character's names. And what they're saying is, well, we should change the book and change his name. Now that's not how the author writ
2: it, like I, Jesus, uh 80 years I, ago Well that like this is I think it's a brilliant example, right? Because that book is again about the racism of the time. His his name in that book is not because somehow, you know, uh when he was writing it, Mark Twain sat down and went, I'm a racist, I'm going to say a racist thing. He was making a commentary about the racism Mm. of the time. He was reflecting the time. And, you know, the relationship between Jim and Huckleberry Finn in that is a story about, you know, somebody not seeing the colour of somebody and understanding what their life is. Yeah, so I think we have to be careful, right? You know, I do think that we have to be careful because we can't just literally pretend that those things didn't happen. Plus, you know, this idea that, like, some kid is going to, like, the reason some kid is using, like, the N-word is because he read Huckleberry Finn. You know what? Celebrate that. He yeah. read Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> like, if he didn't pick <laughs> it up from, you know, yeah. like, you know he, didn't, he didn't get it on the latest Snoop Dogg album, but no, Huckleberry Finn, that's where he picked it up. You yeah. know what?
1: At You're least he's least the is of the parent.
2: Pat him on the back. Good on you, mate.
0: Yeah, to be fair, if a kid's smart enough to get through the hole of Huckleberry Finn, I'm fairly certain he's smart enough not to go around throwing that word about.
2: The truth is, with those sort of words, the more you make them taboos, the more that certain elements of society find them exciting to say regardless. So, you know, it, it intensifies the delight of saying something politically incorrect the more that things are politically correct. And there are people, like the greatest comedians in the world, I still think most of them are not politically correct I mean who are the biggest comedians in the world at the moment I'm like you know Dave Chappelle he, well, I mean you know Dave Chappelle's not politically correct like who, who's currently the biggest comedian in the UK would you say or who's the the top few comedians in the UK I
0: don't know re- recently not, they've all been a bit quiet uh, <laughs> I don't <know> look <laughs> like James Acaster and stuff like that but they're like alternative comedians Darren yeah.
1: Harriot's pretty big isn't he har- um, he's pretty big
0: but the problem is in this country, I find that a lot the the comedians that tend to make it big are very beige.
1: Yeah. So you've got like your, your right. Peter Kay's. Obviously, Peter Kay's massive, but he only does he, he'll do will do like eighty shows in a row and then disappear for six twelve years, years yeah. or whatever or six he years. Does like or five years off. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Half six months
1: off. Um, Kevin Bridges is he, another one. He's quite. Yeah. He's quite. Yeah, amazing. I think we have the opposite back.
0: problem, because in America, it's like you say, the biggest comedians, Dave Chappelle's not politically correct, Bill Burr constantly gets slammed for being yeah. sexist, and then over here, it is it is very, we're very, I feel like we're very sensitive. I don't
2: think. I mean, even like in America, like, uh, I would argue, and you look, he's not really my cup of tea anymore, in fact, he was never really my particular, as a stand-up, my cup of tea, but, you know, as big a comedian as there has been in the last 30 years, Jerry Seinfeld. Like I watched Seinfeld's latest special and it's not politically correct. I'll t- definitely tell you that. Like it might be like mainstream in presentation. He dresses up in a suit and he doesn't really swear, but like the actual comedy itself, some of it's a bit dated, I feel like, but but it's not politically correct. It's, you know, so even their sort of mainstream isn't necessarily politically correct, I don't think. Whereas what I'm hearing from you guys is it feels like in the UK, I don't it's a bit hard to tell here, is is the real answer. I don't really think it is here yet, but we are having that debate a lot. So I guess maybe it's one of those things that could change pretty quickly.
0: Mm. I think the thing is across, it's, uh, the thing is like Eddie Murphy's where before lockdown, he started he again, again, going to the comedy store, stuff like that. He was gonna, he's gonna be coming out with his new special. Now you watch Raw and Delirious. They're, they've dated terribly, because not terribly as in they're not funny, but
2: they're not politically correct anymore. I mean, the first joke in Well, because they're time capsules. Like, for me, that's like South Park. If you go down through the Wikipedia of South Park for every year, you will see a better reflection of what the world was talking about and what the world was thinking and what we're all obsessed by than you will from reading history of those particular years. Because South Park has an incredible capacity for being incredibly satirical about the discussions we're having and the things we're obsessed with and, you know, reflect our society and the way that they express their ideas it dates incredibly badly like incredibly badly because it is the best of all comedy which is completely of its time it is summing up a time and so then when the time moves on then like even eddie murphy said he you know like of course he wouldn't make those jokes now but if you're an 18 year old kid back then like in that time with where you've come from and what your story is and you're making those sort of jokes. I think that's a historical document and Mm. we can just look at it and go, that was funny for the time. And, you know, he was the biggest comedian in the world at the time. Like, I don't think Eddie Murphy is like, you know, lobbying for the idea that he should be able to do those jokes today. I think Eddie Murphy's like, no, 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 I've got some other stuff that I can talk about
0: now. See, this is the thing that, and this was a, a really good interview. I, 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 like it, was, it was a journalist that wrote, uh, spoke to Eddie Murphy and they spoke to him about him coming back in stand-up. And he said the, the issue that he faces is that stand-up is a completely different beast to what it used to be. There was a lot of freedom back then to talk what you want and fans are going to be coming into it expecting him to be talking about the, these things. And he said the problem he's got is if he does that, then there's going to be backlash, fifth, yeah, yeah, a big backlash and people are going to say, shouldn't have said that, you shouldn't have said this. And then if he doesn't say it, If he doesn't kind of go against the grain and do edgy material, people are going to go, well, this isn't the Eddie Murphy we remember.
2: But I think that there are, as Chappelle keeps showing, ways you can be incredibly edgy now. You Mm. just be edgy about different shit. Like, if, if your edginess is only limited to three or four topics, like, if you can't be edgy if you're, like, you know, not making fun of gay people, or if you can't be edgy if you're not being incredibly, you know, sexist or homophobic or whatever, then... I might make the argument that you're not that edgy. Like if you can only be edgy about three or four topics, then I reckon it's the topics that are doing the heavy lifting, not you. I want to see somebody take topics that haven't been talked about before and be incredibly edgy about them. Like you can be incredibly edgy about soap. I mean, come on. We're in the middle of a global pandemic there's never been less of a trust in like news and media and the very things that hold together our civilization. You know, 50 people have half the accumulated wealth in the fucking world. 50 people well, 50 families have half the accumulated wealth in the fucking world. You don't reckon there's some shit you could be edgy about. Like half of fucking Hollywood's going down in sex scandals. Like he's spent a career in the entertainment business that's suddenly been exposed for the massive charade that it is. Celebrities never seem more fucking useless than it does right now. I mean, all these celebrities making, you know, singing imagine and thinking it helps people who are going through legitimate <laughs> struggles. Man, like there's there is shit you can be edgy about, you know. The, the there is so much stuff that you could be edgy about. And a million I mean the fact that Chappelle released, obviously, that special off the back of, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter and, you know, really, like, spoke directly to something that was in so much... I'd love to hear what Eddie Murphy thought about that. You know, Chris Rock has no trouble being edgy. Like, Chris Chris Rock is edgy in a way that when this latest thing happened, his old bad apples routine came up because, you know, was the, the quote was, well, there's a few bad apples, and Chris Rock has that, routine from it's got to be five or six years ago minimum now about the idea of like you know there are some jobs that can't have bad apples you know you know can't be a yeah you know, pilots can't have bad apples you know there's it's a whole good bit that at the time was a good bit but now is an even better bit yeah that's yeah. edgy it's not the whole if the you're doing a matters. bit if you're doing a bit about something that five years later still has cultural relevance in fact has more cultural relevance relevance than it did when you that's edgy
0: Yeah, Michael Shea matters. the, The special Michael Shea put out, Michael Shea matters, that has been referenced no end through all of this. I mean, one of his best jokes is like, we're not asking, like, we're not saying we're better. We're not saying we're the same. We're just saying we matter. Like, that whole bit just went, just blew up on social media. And that was a bit that was put out six years ago.
2: Right. So that's, there's plenty of shit to talk about (laughs) would be my argument you know and there's never been more to talk about we're at a massive time of cultural reassessment where like we've never been through anything like this in our lifetimes our generation how old are you fellas Uh, i'm 29 i'm 33 okay so you've been through two in your lifetimes right well you're almost too young for the first one which is well i think the internet and then this would be the argument I would make because the internet changed everything. You're yeah. probably a little bit too young to remember how much it changed everything. But for me, the internet kind of really became a thing around age 20. So the first half of my life, like you went to library to look shit up. Like we didn't live in the world where you went to the movies to watch things. You, you went to a restaurant to eat food, you know what I mean? Like yeah. all these things that have changed so substantially. And if we wanted to do this, like I we wouldn't be able to do it unless we were in the same place to do it. We'd probably have to be in a radio station to make it happen. And then how would we get people to hear it? Like, what, would we make cassette tapes and hand them out of gigs? Like, <laughs> like the, you know, it, it revolutionised everything. Dating the way we interact as human beings, a cultural revolution within our lifetimes. And then to run into this, a global pandemic on a scale where the entire world shut down. The entire world, every single country has shut down, like had to like unprecedented. We just put a pause on our world. We've put a pause on our lives. And now we have to work out when we go back to whatever the new normal is going to be, what that looks like. But it's going to look substantially different to what we thought it was going to look like at Christmas this year. At Christmas this year we never would have imagined the world we will be living in by December twenty five this year. Like who knows what's still up the sleeve of this year. We we will be feeling the repercussions of what we're going through currently for the next decade, twenty, thirty years, and we're going to run straight into climate change. If there's not shit for you to talk about, then you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be a comedian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: especially in in twenty. If you, if you're a comedian in twenty twenty, and all you can bitch about is that you can't make your gay jokes or your black jokes anymore, maybe you shouldn't be a comedian because <laughs> <laughs> it's not like just, there's a lack of material. Just
2: some other stuff, guys. Yeah.
0: some other stuff around. <laughs> So you've recently, uh, you you were obviously a radio DJ for a long time as well. And you've recently stopped doing that.
2: Yeah. Was that a Triple, so, well, G- triple J? The Hot so I did triple G- Yeah. So I did Triple J for five years back in the day, which is Australia's new radio station, it's, basically. It's the
1: biggest radio station in, in Australia, isn't it?
2: I think. Well, for for young people. Definitely. Yeah.
1: It's like, like our Radio 1,
2: basically. And it plays like alternative music. And um, it doesn't play commercials. It's on the ABC, basically. And... So, yeah, I was on the Breakfast Show on Triple J for five years with a guy called Adam Spencer, and that was, I was 25. And so, yeah, 25 to 30, and just, like, the best years you would ever have in your entire life, you know, starting out as a stand-up and then suddenly having this job that, you know, like, really was as cool. It was, you know, if you're 25 years old and you're doing the Breakfast Show on Triple J, it's kind of as cool a job as you can possibly have, you know? It's credible, but it's also popular. You know, you're getting paid more money than, you know, it's not a lot of money compared to the commercial networks, but more money than you've ever heard doing, you know, stand up comedy gigs for $50, you know, pressed into your palm at the end of the evening. So, um, no, nah, the best times, you know, hanging out with bands and seeing shows and, you know, getting up every morning and just having no restrictions on what it is that we would talk about. So the guy, Adam, who I did it with, is like a maths and science, nerd, you know, a great broadcaster and a comedian. but his background is maths and science and I was from a dairy farm and so we kind of had this real interesting like we had a lot of things we liked talking about together but then all these areas that neither of us had any in common which you know kind of made it really interesting and yeah it was it was great fun times and but yeah getting up at you know three four in the morning to you know make radio every day and then trying to do stand-up comedy at night which was hard and i was like enough, I had a TV show as well. So it was like, it was a busy, busy old time, not a lot of sleep, not the sort of thing that I could do at my age now, but yeah. uh, the sort of thing that, I mean, I remember, cause we would, I would work all week and then I would party all weekend, you know, you're a young person with access to this kind of cool world of being able to go out and have fun and, and we took full advantage of that, you know, hanging out with bands and, you know, drinking all night and taking drugs and doing the whole you know, experience, like, you know, like, you yeah, know, kicking off on a friday you know morning straight after the show going out and having like a bottle of wine with breakfast and then just not sleeping until sunday night you know that sort of lifestyle whereas um i just went back and did yeah radio for like two and a half years in the mornings again on a commercial network you know for for money let's be honest that was mostly why i did it and <laughs> um <laughs> uh and they just a completely different experience you know that sort of thing of like you know, if, if it was eight o'clock on a weeknight and, you know, I didn't have anything to do, I'd be in bed asleep and, you know, really trying to, you know, manage your, your time and your emotions and doing a grown up job. But I just found it completely, I quit at the end of last year, which look, to be honest, um, probably would have been good. Cause what my plan was, I was just going to do a stand-up all year. So anyway, then a global pandemic happened. So I'd see for the comedy timing probably. Probably would have been good to hang on to that job. Probably shouldn't have made that big speech at the end. I loved them, but I really love stand-up. wasn't wasn't the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. But but no, I don't. I don't even really regret it, despite the fact that uh, I'm currently an unemployed stand-up comedian. But uh, I, um, you know, my my true love, and probably what the time we're going through at the moment just reinforces this, which is like you 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 stop caring what the world thinks is important because suddenly all we've about the world is all the things we thought were important aren't really that important. The only really important thing is to, do, what What do I want to do? What is it that makes me happy? And, you know, I told you about that story about sitting in that audience with Billy Connolly and just feeling as happy as I've, I've felt. And I've never since then of all the things I've been lucky enough to do, um, I've never had a feeling as good as you know being in a stand-up in a stand on a stand-up stage telling jokes to people. So, yeah, I've uh, given up the radio so I could you know concentrate on doing gigs at night. Now I'm. I've been in the same house for four months without leaving. So anyway, it's fine.
0: <laughs> be, I mean, to be fair, between your like your four podcasts, you've got Gruer, um doing stand-up and the radio. When this come about, did you not just kind of go, "Oh, thank fuck"? Just four months, <laughs> just chill out. Because it must it must have been so hectic having all juggling all them things all at once.
2: Uh, okay. So I'll be honest with you. So I've done the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Mm the last 25 years in a row. Yes. So that means that every year for the last 25 years, I've written a new show. And there were a couple of those years where I wrote two new shows. Um, so I've probably written 26, 27 shows in the last quarter of a century. Yeah, and this
0: was something I wanted to talk about because I was looking through all your shows and I was gobsmacked that you were pumping out what a different one every single year.
2: Different one every single year, because it was the, I mean, it was the, I started doing yeah, comedy at the Melbourne Comedy Festival when, it, when I started, it was only six Galaxina. years old.
0: Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> For some reason, my Alexa kicked off. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, when I started, it was uh, only like six or seven years old. You know, it's just had its 30th anniversary of the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and it's become, you know, one of the big three comedy festivals in the world, but... Yeah. When I first started doing it, it was, you know, like somebody sent me a chalkboard from outside the Melbourne Town Hall and all the shows were on one chalkboard back then, you know, just there was probably only 12 shows and they, they sent me, you know, from 20 years ago or whatever. And I, so I grew up with that festival and I, you know, for, for a while was probably the, well, I was, the, you know, they, they have a thing called the People's Choice Award, which is really just who sold the most tickets. That's really what it is. They should call it the Who Sold the Most Tickets Award, but they call it the People's Choice Award, which I guess is a nicer way to put it. And um, I won that six times. So there was a, a period of time where like, the Melbourne audiences were just being so incredibly generous in the way that they were supporting what it was that I was doing that, it just kind of felt impolite to not do a new show every year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they seem to be enjoying it. I was like, well, why should I stop doing it? You know? And um, it was a nice way to earn my living. And, um, but so I've never had time off because you, if you're writing a new show every year, you can't have any time off because it yeah, takes a whole know. year to, to get your new show together, particularly while you're still doing your old show. And then on top of that, I had TV and radio and, podcasts and all sorts of other nonsense. And um, so, yeah, I've been flat out for a quarter of a century. No one has enjoyed this break more than me. It feels, sometimes I look at it and I just think like, this is a horrible thing to say, but occasionally when I see all those people at the beach and I know that that means there's probably going to be a heap more infections and we're going to have to be shut down for a bit longer. There's a bit of me that goes, Good. <laughs> like, let's, I'm like let's, not quite, let's not quite rush back into this yeah. old world again because i'm quite enjoying having oh, the time oh, oh. To enjoy
0: this for the second wave i think i didn't i didn't make it the most of the first wave i just kind of sat around played video games dip, painted the odd bedroom and that was it second wave i'm like i'm gonna learn the guitar this time I'm really I'm just. I'm going to do something. I'm just going to reinvest yeah. all my time. I hope there's a second wave so I can buy a guitar.
2: <laughs> first, first wave was to work out what you wanted to do in the second wave. But yeah. That was our practice wave. We've yeah. all had a little feel for what it is that we want to do <laughs> while we're at home. Second time around, we can really lean into the wave.
0: Yeah, I've spent four months procrastinating. I think I can do it now.
2: <laughs> well, the thing about comedy is one of those things, that it's going to be the last thing to come back. And it, well, it's already back in some places, like, but it's back with 15 people in a room and all socially distances and, and nothing wrong with that. Like people at that level of the scene absolutely I understand a the imperative to be on stage and secondly the imperative to make a few dollars, you know? And I guess even more so to have those rooms. If the pubs are reopening and the comedy doesn't come back in that room, the pub will find something else to do in that room on a Tuesday that night and then suddenly that gig isn't there when they can actually go back to it. So I get that. that's not the level of like the shows that I do and the size of shows that I do, I don't think we'll be back this year. Really. We've still got some books for the end of the year, but like every now and again, my manager rings me up and and just like says another one's not happening. And I, they announce it to me like they're announcing a death, but I take it like I'm identifying a body because I already knew it was dead. I don't think it's going to happen. I can't see. The idea of getting like a thousand people in a room where my sole intention for 80 minutes is to get them to expel fluids from their mouth in the direction of other people just doesn't seem like a responsible thing to do.
0: Yeah. No. Um, yeah, I, I'm looking, see I'm looking in the respect that I don't need a thousand people in a room nor could I get a thousand people in a room. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm just I, just, I think we're just taking it as it is. See what we can do. Um, I mean, like I said, the pubs are open as of next Saturday, but there's no live entertainment for any venues. So
2: we're, we're just waiting. It's small here. Around meals is the exemption here, I think, at the moment. But I think in the next few weeks, they're really going to try to get people in. The big theatres are the ones that are pushing it, obviously, because things like the big you know, foreign musicals and plays and stuff have these guarantees, and they just need to have a certain amount of dates. So the Harry Potter cursed child is at the princess theater in Melbourne and they've got a five year engagement. You know, they booked the theater for five years. They renovated the entire theater. It looks like Harry Potter, you know, they turned it into a Harry Potter thing. And the idea is they sell out every show for five years and that's, you know, how they invest all that money. And yeah, they'd sold tickets two years in advance. And then suddenly if they can't get them back in there by, I think September, the show just goes away, you know? So next three years, whether I'm meant to be there, it just won't be there. So, um, I don't know where it would be, by the way. I think that's a weird thing to say, that that show won't exist because what else is it going to do? It's not yeah. going to be able to perform anywhere else. But anyway, <laughs> that's apparently what they're saying.
1: Who was the most famous musician you, you got to meet when you were at Triple J or band? And have you got any stories uh, of, of crazy nights out? Like,
2: I mean, there's a few, but probably not many that I can tell would be the answer to that question. Yeah, we had Um, had
0: Uncle Frank from the Fun Loving Criminals, and we we got one story out of him, and he was arrested. Like, no, they're all too incriminating.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of incriminating. There was a lot of fun to be had. I remember one night, my friend Adam. We've told this story publicly, so he he won't mind me sharing it. But we were at a hotel lobby bar at the Adelaide Hilton after the Adelaide Big Day Out, and uh, Peter Hook from New Order came up to him, and Adam was having such a good time that Peter Hook from New Order was like, you cool man, <laughs> do you need some water or something? And you gotta say, when Peter Hook from New Order is telling you, you might be having too big a night, you have it a big time. <laughs> um, the, the Coldplay boys before they were kind of famous was probably, yeah, Chris Martin ended up kind of becoming a super famous person, but we knew him you know, back when they were really just like, you know, a little indie English band out in Australia trying to, you know, flog their record and the only place that was really playing it was Triple J. So they were the sort of, you know, guys who would literally just come into the studio at the drop of the hat to sing us a song or do something fun for the show because they were at that level of their career where they were still, um, you know, building it all. And I, that summer I saw, I won't, I can't name who this other person is because this is just not, definitely not public knowledge. But I saw Chris Martin definitely seduce and have a kind of, you know, a, a tour fling with another, a popular female artist who was on the on the bill at the time. Who uh, it, it, I was like, this guy's going somewhere. I could tell. <laughs> yeah, they're playing. They're playing at three o'clock in the afternoon in the in the sun playing Yellow. But I was like, you know, I, I feel like these guys are going somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we try and guess. Um, Dave, guess or will you tell us?
2: <laughs> you can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can. Yeah, you can have a guess. Um, Credible, alternative, English, female. Alternative English.
0: Come on, this is your department. Oh, You're man, the music. Man. Honestly, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> uh, when,
2: was, when was it? Uh, this has got to be like 20 odd years ago, 20 plus years ago. So it's a long time ago, before no, your time I, probably.
0: I, for some reason I want to say Alonis
2: she's american oh yeah she yeah she is well she's a canadian actually oh is but, she? Uh, yeah um but uh a bit angsty but not quite alanis morissette sort of anyway it was pj harvey <laughs> he's gonna like it's not like it's not like if, if it really like if the fact that chris martin and pj harvey had an affair like 25 years ago blows up out of this podcast that will be an unlikely yeah. thing to about this podcast <laughs>
0: that's what we need we need a big scoop to get a podcast off the
2: ground have you yeah. got
0: any real dirt on some major a-list <laughs> celebrities
2: i wish i did i wish i had something really good i was like that, that most of the, the really good ones are super charming that's what i tended to find to be honest like really? i'd say like dave Grohl, for example was just one of those dudes who was like you would remember your name from the last time you talked to him he'd like remember my girlfriend's name and he'd like um you know, who he met once, like previously, like those sort of guys, the ones who were really good, just were just very nice. I I, I once asked, he was touring with Queens of the Stone Age and I said, look, you know, Foo Fighters, Queens of the Stone Age, Nirvana, literally you've been in three of the biggest and best bands of this generation. What's your secret? And he was just like, talent. (laughs) I guess... I guess that is probably the secret. That is a good secret. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Jamie, Jamie Oliver once stole one of my recipes. There you go. Like that's oh, actually a true story. So, cool. well, not a real not a real recipe, and i probably stole it from someone myself. But I'm not a <laughs> professional. I'm not a professional chef. I think I'm allowed to steal recipes. Just not material. That's that's not yeah, a uh, he was on our radio show and our conceit was that we were going to cook him breakfast. So I can't remember what Adam made him, but I decided I would make him cheese on toast in the toaster. So you ever done this? You turn the toaster on the side and you put the cheese on the toast and then you put it just in the toaster on the side and make no, cheese but the I toast.
0: but I will now. I didn't even right. do that. It's- That's genius.
2: <laughs> I know, right? So I showed Jamie Oliver that and literally the next series of his TV show starts with him going downstairs going his little life hack turns the toaster on the side puts in the bread and cheese but then puts tomato on the top which I, th- I bet was him going nah it's different right? <laughs> and then because the tomato was too soggy like the, the bread melts and the whole thing catches on fire it's in one of his shows and I was like you stole that from me, you <laughs> stole that from me. Yeah.
0: it's the equivalent of someone stealing your joke and fucking it up <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, just adding a topper and you go, that, that's not how I do it there's a, a, a an Australian comedian called Brad Oaks, who you guys might not have heard of, he's a, just a really great you know, working club Australian comedian, but yeah, really fantastic act and has some really amazing jokes, but he tells this fantastic story, just true story about this guy who came up to him one day and was just like, look I've been doing one of your jokes and I just can't get it to work, can you give me some tips? <laughs>
0: Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> 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 oh, God. Yeah, I actually had that one, so I used to do a really short bit. I can't remember what it was, but I did it, and someone stole it. We did a gig together, and three days later, he used it in his set, and he come up, on and one of the lads... I never said anything to it about it, but one of the other comedians went, you stole his joke. He went, no, I didn't. I went, you did, but it's fine. He went, well, if I stole your joke, why aren't you bothered? I said, because you're a shit comedian. You did do it wrong anyway. <laughs> I hate it. (laughs) There's so many jokes. I think it's a British thing because we have American comedians on, but there's so many joke thieves in this country. Yeah,
2: there is actually. I think because you guys also have a jokes in particular, that's very British. Mm. Whereas like, you know, sometimes, I mean, it's, it's natural that people are going to come up with, I mean, all you have to do is look at Twitter, particularly if it's something topical or something that everybody is talking about. There is a hive mind sense. Like, um what john uh, john maloney is that the american comedian john john maloney yeah
0: no the, what's his name just kid gorgeous right? yeah
2: yeah really fantastic comedian um i've watched a heap of stuff recently because somebody pointed out that one of our routines has a similar like starting point and they were just like have you ever seen his bit and i was like no i'm gonna go and have a look because i just yeah you just don't want to be doing something that someone else has done even if it's Completely coincidental, right? Particularly someone who's put it on tape. And so I ended up watching like so much of his stuff. Like I thought it was so great. But the thing is, the bit they were talking about, I was actually quite relieved because it, all it is is two people noticing the same starting point and then where it goes uh, is completely different. And that's the thing about like I think Australian comedy and probably American comedy to a certain extent is like most of the comedy is about where it goes like as opposed to the joke. Whereas in British comedy, I think there is a lot of emphasis like, when you go to Edinburgh, they always, you know, like what are the best jokes of the festival? Like this idea that like Australian comedy isn't like dominated by the idea of jokes, like routines, bits, perspectives, where you take that thing, it wouldn't really matter if all 200 acts at the comedy festival all got the same topics at the start, as long as you all then went away and made different meals about it like you know what my take on that topic would be just should be really different to what your take on that topic would be and yeah. what your take on a topic would be and what chris Rockett's, rock's take on the same topic would be you yeah, know like be that's,
0: more parallel thinking
2: right yeah
0: so like with the bit with uh, the i did i knew it was it was the bit was the exact same because it was it was literally it was only a short bit it was a bridge bit between two stories and it was just an exact ripoff of what I was doing. Um, but well, then again, it's like you say, okay. I've done bits that you can watch major celebrities do something that's very parallel thing, and you think, well, I can't do that because then it looks like I'm ripping them off.
2: Well, that's I think that's like often what happens, and mm-hmm. I think I've been on both sides of that over the years. Like, like I've had people say to me, oh, I was doing a bit like that, and you did, yeah, you know, something similar, and then I couldn't do it. And 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 I've certainly been at home and watched somebody do something and just go, all right, well, I guess I can't. That bit's just gone. I had one with my my dear friend Justin Hamilton, who's a brilliant Australian comedian, and he tours with me. Like he's literally my best friend, and he's toured with me, opening for me for like nearly twenty years. And we hadn't seen each other's shows this year. Like we'd written and yeah, you know, we hadn't seen each other. We've been in different places. And so in Adelaide at the Fringe Festival, we went and um, yeah, saw each other's shows after a year of not like gigging together. And we had one routine again different executions because we're different people but one routine that was definitely still about the same thought you know the same thing that we were both kind of obsessed with in a complete bubble from each other and that's that's my best friend it just happens sometimes yeah. but hope that your stuff is so uniquely you like if i'm talking about something it it will come so much from my unique perspective and what it is that i am trying to talk about that it's identifiable as being mine because of how I'm approaching it, not what the topic is in the first place.
0: Yeah. No, I get that because if it's a personal story to you or it's a personal observation to you, you're more invested in it on stage. If you try and take someone else's material and do it the same, you can't do that because you don't have the emotional investment
2: in that bit. Right. Yeah. And maybe your perspective's not right. And maybe you're I don't know, like, I mean, but also it feels a little, like, why not just be an actor? Yeah. Like, if you want to say what other people wrote, just be an actor. That's fine, you know? And look, there's stand-up comedians who have writers and stuff. That's also fine, you know? But, yeah, the idea of just, like, intentionally taking somebody else's thing is, you know, the the other... And this is why some comedians don't like to watch comedy. And I know, like, as an adult, I never watch comedy half-watch it now because what you don't want is that idea that something just soaks into your brain and you don't know that you've heard it. Like, say so you've got something on the background or you're half listening yeah. to something and it goes in and then you end up writing about that thing and that joke comes out and it feels like it just came out of your brain, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. It came. So I think that like when I'm watching stuff these days, I really concentrate on going, I am watching this thing and I'm being very aware of this is this performer and this is, you know, this is what they are saying. So that if that F thought ever came into my mind, I'd immediately be like, oh no, hang on. I saw John Mulaney do a bit yeah. like that.
0: Definitely. You don't want to have that, like you say, <clears throat> paying half attention and you have a sublim- subliminal thought in the back of your head and you think, that's genius. I should write a bit about that. And then the, the idea was actually sparked from someone else's idea.
2: I've, I mean, I sometimes Google, I like. I mean, honestly, if something comes too quickly to me, sometimes I Google it. I, I, and, you know, if I, if it, if you just have that idea and you're just like, "Ooh, am I smart enough to have thought about that by myself, or <laughs> is that just something I've heard someone smarter than me say?" And I'm, I'm just saying it now. And I will, I will, or do a ring around. Like mean, it, these days, I'm not doing as many sort of gigs with people that you can kind of ring around to. But back in the day, when you are like doing a whole bunch of gigs, I might just ring some other comics and go, "Hey." Have you heard anyone have this take? Or if I know there's a comedian who might be covering that same area, like so there's a, a younger comedian than me called Tom Ballard, who's an Australian comedian who does you know kind of political social commentary stuff as well. So sometimes if there was like a an Australian issue that I felt like both of us might be talking about, I might just ring him and say, "Hey, are you doing a bit on you know the bushfires in Australia?" would be a good example, right? The bushfires he's probably the comic who's most likely to have a similar area that he's working from and palette that he's working from from me. So I will often just give him a call and go, Hey, I think I'm going here, here and here. Are you going to any of these places? And he'll be like, yeah, no, or whatever. And we'll have a chat around it. Like almost like a dividing out of it before we, (laughs) before we start on actually coming up with the jokes. I might go here, here and here and you can have here, here and here.
0: (laughs) No, I've definitely done that. I've done it as well where I've done something. I'm like, oh, that might be a bit too obvious, that's got to have been done before. And then I just end up trying to find out if anyone's done the subject or been close to, which I have done a couple of times and I've gone, yeah, okay, that was a joke. I, I, I can't remember what joke, I was doing a weird joke about the lottery and daydreaming about winning the lottery and how it just alters your perspective of your day. You know, like the idea of, sometimes you get, in, you get caught in that rabbit hole of, oh, what would I do if I won the lottery? oh, I know, I'd go on holiday for a year solid, then I'd come back and buy a mansion, and you're daydreaming at work, and your boss says, get on with work, and you're like, fuck off. You also automatically have that attitude of, I've won the lottery now. <laughs> and I thought it was really good, and then I just, I was like, that's what God to have already been done, and I, I spent a whole day doing it. Thought, right, no one's done it, great, I'm going to take it on stage. I went to, this was about a year ago, and I went, I went to a gig, and I thought, I'll try it out, do it, and it went really well, and my mate come up, and he went, yeah, that's been done before. And I was like, "Shit!" Don't, I must have spent twelve hours trying to find the guy. And he was like, um, I, "I think it was a, an old Louis CK joke." And he's went, "Yeah, Louis CK
1: did, did something very similar." I was
0: like, "Shit!" I thought it was really good as well,
1: <laughs>
2: hands down. I'm well, bit,
1: you know what? Go on. Sorry, I was going to say I've stole Louis's stuff before. i will put a my hand up, I've done it loads on this. <laughs> yeah. I've, he's, he's told me jokes before, and I've I've come on here like two days later and done done them like on the podcast. I like just chatting away, and it's just worked out perfectly that I can fit this bit in, and it's all is. And I, I didn't even know subliminally. I didn't even know we were talking about it in the van, like you know, like.
2: I mean, I steal jokes from everyone in my life, like you know, what I mean, like like my girlfriend is constantly like, well, I said that, and I'm just like, yeah, but you have no use for it. I can. <laughs> I've done that. I've retold
0: a story my girlfriend told me. And then she got on stage and she's like, you can't do that. I was like, yes, I can. I'm a storyteller. I I tell it much better than you.
2: Oh, man. The amount of things in my show that I say happened to me that happened to her. Like, I just take them and I just change them to happening about me. Because I don't tell them about her. I don't want to embarrass her. But I will make me the person in it that's like, yeah. So if something like she does something embarrassing, she'll be embarrassed by it. No, I'm the whole time. I'm like, no, no, no that's good, that's good, that's, that's a good, that's a good bit for me because I can get, I can get all the joy out of like telling that story in front of an audience, but none of the embarrassment of it actually having happened to me.
1: <laughs> have you uh, have you ever come across um, an Australian comedian? He lives over here called Thomas Green. I know. who he, he is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he does. He's on the circuit here. He's he's really good.
0: Yeah, but he's get he's getting very popular over it. He's a fantastic comedian.
2: Yeah,
0: I think. There's I mean, a, I also well, see. There's them... an
2: opportunity now. There's an opportunity now for people to travel internationally, but also there's an opportunity for people to, like, I mean, I find it amazing that um, there's just no way we would have You know, like, and we're having this conversation, Jane. This is great fun, and like, it's really nice to hear what like your perspectives are as well, because like, I've been where you are, right? Yeah. Like, you know, starting out, like, starting out doing things and making things, and like, seeing where it's all going to go, and it's like super exciting, and it's the best times. Like, it's that it's never more fun than it is right now. Like, I mean, I know it might not feel it sometimes. Like, it sometimes feels disheartening, and like, when's you know this all Going to happen properly and how am I going to get really great at this but it's also the best time because that's the most exciting time of it that wondering and trying and experimenting and you know working out whether you can do it or not and what stories you can tell and how you're going to legitimately come up with a way to be funny and you know what you guys are getting together and you're making this show right like you're making a show like in the old days like that was the thing that you dreamed of doing Like, you would get the opportunity to make a show. Well, you guys are doing it all the time now. You're talking to all these cool people. Like, I looked at all the people you've talked to on the show already. Like, this is cool already. And, like, you're already doing it. This is the exciting time to me. So, like, getting to talk to you guys at that time for you guys, I always find, like, exciting and exhilarating. And it's why I still love comedy. Like, it just has its own energy
0: no we're, like i said we really appreciate you coming on a lot because we are new to it we are starting up and uh we like it's like you said that we just love doing it even if there was five people listening to it we'd still do it because it's just enjoyable and it's, we get perspective on
1: people as well it's just a way to vent really you know yeah. stuff that you want to just get off your chest just get it off your chest you yeah.
2: know so i mean that is a good thing isn't it and yeah. i also think that then you're connecting with other people, right? Like I was saying about Billy Connolly, every person who downloads this, every person who listens to it, like they suddenly have a connection. not only with you guys, but with the other people who are listening to it, even though they don't know it. Like, you know, someone can be listening in Australia. Somebody can be listening in the UK. Somebody can be listening in America and they're all having a connection. And the connection that they're having, those people is all through you guys and yeah. mm-hmm. and what you're making, this thing that you're making. And, like Stuart Lee, who I'm sure you know, uh, yeah. Uh, so Stuart Lee has this theory about 2,000 super fans. Have you ever heard this? Like, it, it's the best comedy thing that I've ever. I look. I don't know if he came up with it or where he got it from, but I heard it first from him, right? So, and it, the idea is, we think so often about the idea that you've got to have 20,000 people listening to the podcast. You've got to have 200,000 people listening to the podcast. You've got to have like. Like TOEFOP, the podcast that Charlie and I have been doing for a decade, it's not the most popular podcast I do by a long way. Like we'll of is super much more successful, you know, it's just a much more like easily accessible podcast than the one that Charlie and I do, but I don't like it any more or less because of that. Like the people who have listened to TOEFOP, there's like only 50,000 of them, right? Like 50,000 people over the world, that's still a pretty good number, but it's not like a huge number by podcasting standards. And it's not a huge number by the standards of some of the other shows that I do. But most of them have listened to us for 10 years. You know, we've been a part of their lives and they've been a part of our lives for a decade. Like that, just because there isn't 10 times as many of them doesn't make the relationship we, we have with them any better or worse. And that doesn't matter if it's five people or 10 people, but Stuart talks about this idea of 2000 super fans and the idea of how to build an audience is really all you've got to do is convince 2000 people you're worth 50 quid a year right yeah. and that's not a lot if you think about it like it's a stand-up special and a t-shirt or a ticket to a show or whatever 50 quid a year it's a quid a week th- th- it's a quid a week right? apart
1: two week with a two-week break for christmas that's all it is for
2: 2000 people it's not It's actually not that many, right? Like 2,000 feels achievable. And if you do that, that's 100 quid a year. That's your income. That's a job, right? So if you can just convince 2,000 people to like you enough to give you 50 quid a year, you have a pretty good career. And then you just make 3,000 people like you as much as the 2,000. And you make 5,000 like you as much (laughs) as the 3,000, you know? And that's how you build a career. It's all about
1: opportunities, isn't it? And uh, like being able to do what we're doing now with you is giving us an opportunity to go forward because people will look at this and take us a little bit more serious than somebody that's just starting out that have got people that uh, as guests that are not so well known, you know, I know, I know full well now, now we've, we've had you on and we've chatted and we've, we'll put this episode out I know full well that it will look more professional in the long run to get more and guests reach on, more and reach more people. Yeah. So we really do appreciate that. Cause I'm, yeah, I mean, hopefully going forward. Yeah, I,
2: appreciate, I appreciate being part of your resume going forward. <laughs> Oh, it's, uh... but,
0: yeah no it's good I mean you're right because I know lads that have it's like you say um, I don't know if you, you know who it is, but Adam Rowe and Dan Nightingale have a new podcast on over here they started it at the beginning of the lockdown and in the couple of months in the first couple of months they had a thousand subscribers to their patreon at five pound a month it's like they've said they've just got a wage they've just get they're getting paid now during coronavirus they've saved themselves
1: their is really good, to be honest. It is a really good listen. Yeah.
2: And well, I mean, that they, does during help. During lockdown, because put in, an episode out a day. Yeah. What I love, though, about that is that sometimes people get embarrassed about that, I think. Like, sometimes people get embarrassed about the idea that it isn't a TV network or a radio network mm. or something like this. that has come along and said, you're important or you're, fuck that shit. Like, fuck putting all those people in the way of you and your audience. That to me, like the people who subscribe to my Patreon, I always say to people, doesn't matter how many emails I get to the Patreon, I will respond to every single one of those people because you've all invested in the show. You're like your shareholders in the show. Like you are my most important audience. Now, I'm glad it's free and a whole bunch of other people who don't contribute to the Patreon can still listen to it, but you guys are also the reason that they get to listen to it. So you should also feel a bit proud of that because not only is your contribution meaning that, hey, here's five dollars, yeah, here's five quid a month because I like what you do. But what you're actually doing is donating five quid a month for all those other people who can't afford to give five quid a month so they can still hear the show as well. So it it's cool, man. I I love this new world for that reason. Like I am such and that's why I have four podcasts, despite the fact that I have all these like what more traditional media jobs, you know, I have a you know super successful T V show that I've been doing for like we're about to do our 12th year, you know, it's been the number one show on our network for 12 years, but I feel very grateful that I've got to do that show, but I don't feel connected to the audience who watch that. And that is like millions of people Mm. in the same way as I connect to the people who listen to the podcast and support the Patreon because they're the people who really are like, you know, the TV show is free. It comes on your television, regardless of whether you want it or not, you know, but (laughs) the podcast you have to go and find and, you know, enjoy. So no, I, 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 I dig it. I'm a big fan of, you know, this new world. And I, I think that it means that people can discover all these incredible things that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise been able to discover. Yeah,
0: I think, I think with podcasts as well, there is something that is uniquely raw about them. It's the whole thing of, it's, it's like when celebrities started doing, like Ozzy Osbourne did the Osbourne, stuff like that. the look into their life. I feel that's what a podcast is. You get to hear their opinions, what they do in their day to day life. It's very there's no filter to it, and I think people just love that. I think people like to hear comedians, celebrities, musicians talk, and it humanizes them. And I think that's what appeals when, you know, for for the sake of five pound a month, people are happy to pay
2: that. It's not a lot, right? It's what you pay for, like a, a fancy coffee or a sandwich or something. So yeah. if you yeah. if you like if you like a show, I mean, I contribute to. I'm a big believer in also like paying for entertainment. Like there are so many things that, like obviously, I get an opportunity to go to for free. And don't get me wrong, if I feel like they can do without my money, I'm I'm happy to take a free ticket. I did not pay for the U2 tickets. I thought Bonos so doing fine. I can get a free ticket to U2, you know. <laughs> um, but um, it, but you know, if I'm going to go and see like a a comedian, an emerging comedian, like at the festival, for example, like. I mean, I can walk in any fest, like Melbourne Comedy Festival show, and see it for free. Like they'll let me in to see any show I want to see. But if I'm going to go and see someone who's, you know, an emerging artist, I always buy a ticket because I think it's important to like, if you want to, like, you know, if you genuinely believe in people supporting things that you, if you have the capacity to support them, you should. So there's a bunch of podcasts that I listen to that I support their patreons. You know, it's not like a one-way street. Like, I also. You know, contribute to the, one, the shows that I like. Mm. And I like that. It makes me feel good to do that.
0: Brilliant. Um, should we call it a pod? Yeah, we can call so it a was, pod. That was absolutely amazing, mate. Thank you so much for doing this.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm oh, really... That's right. My pleasure. Because I, mean, Sorry, we I have, didn't I feel had... like I was funny enough. I should have been funnier. No, mate. No, it was, no, it was, no, it was absolutely
0: right. spectacular. <laughs> to be honest as well, we've done other podcasts. A lot. We had um, a famous footballer for us where we are called Muzzy Is It. We've had the drummer from Fun Loving Criminals. But... When, because obviously Lee spoke to you and said that he'd got in contact with you, it's the first time I've got a bit fanboy like, yes, no, he is, love him, let's go. So, for me, just <laughs> being able to speak to you is just fantastic. And also to get your perspective on something that I'm working towards is just invaluable.
2: Well, I, I wish you all the best. Like, I really, I genuinely do. It's a, it's a really cool um, thing to do with your life, honestly. Like, it's hard. I won't lie about that.
0: How long have you been doing it for? Uh, not long, just over two years.
2: Yeah. So not long at all. Right. So, you know, everyone will tell you the same thing. It'll take you, don't, don't stress. It'll take you five to seven years to find your voice properly. That's all true. You know, you can't really rush it. All you can do is just take as many risks and try as many things and you know, the The important thing isn't to be discovered the important thing is to be ready to be discovered when they discover you and that early time is about getting ready you know doing your training working out what it is that is you know unique and funny and interesting about you and your story and what the stories are that you like to tell and all that sort of stuff but also you, you've s- signed up to a life trying to master something that is inherently unmasterable like it is Comedy, that you know what we started talking about, that political correctness stuff. What that really is is the idea that no joke can ever be perfect because it can be perfect at the time, but then the times can change and the joke is no longer perfect, right? Eddie Murphy's routine, he was the biggest comedian in the world. Those specials were the biggest specials in the world. So, by that definition, those jokes were perfect at the time, mm. but times change. So, you've signed up to a life of trying to perfect something that cannot be perfected. All you're gonna find over your career of it is moments of perfection. There will be moments where you realize that I am so in the moment, I am so in the zone, I am telling this joke and this idea and this routine better than anybody else in the world could right now. I'm not the best comedian in the world, but I'm the best me comedian that anyone could be right now. No one could be that right now. And you'll have moments of that. You've probably had moments of that already if you've done it two years. That's what keeps you going is those, glimpses where you're like oh 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 boy oh i see that moment where you just get it so right and so maybe if i could just do that more often and for longer you know this could really be a thing for me Mm -hmm. well the trick is just to keep going until you can do it longer and for more often Mm -hmm. no one's going to stop you from doing it other than you and like it's a cool thing to dedicate your life to because you are going to discover so much about yourself through this job but it's hard like I won't lie to you and I've been somebody who's been incredibly lucky you know what I mean like my career has been so far beyond what I could have ever imagined my career might have been if I even had the uh, tools to be able to imagine what a career was because when I started doing comedy it wasn't really a career in Australia it's only really become a career you know while I've been doing comedy I've been lucky that this thing that I I ran away to join the circus, and the circus kind of became a bit mainstream and employable while I was doing it. So um, now it's a different thing. It's an industry, and you're entering into an industry where there's like thousands of other people who also think they can enter into the industry. I can tell you the biggest difference you will have between, sorry, is this too much? But the big, you know, might as well say it. Fuck it, whatever. I'm not going to be embarrassed about saying it. Um, so the thing that will differentiate you from them will always be you knowing you. Mm. That's all it's about. The more that you can explore what it is that you really think, that you can interrogate your unique perspective, that you don't have to have the same opinion as what the mainstream opinion is. Like you can, if it is your legitimate opinion, but just be legitimate, be authentic, and speak from your heart. And if you do that, then I think that'll be really rewarding regardless. But I also think that's your best chance of it being a career. Don't worry about the fact that at the moment, it's all pretty bland and mainstream at the top because you're not at the top yet. You know, yeah. like by the time you're at the top, if you're gonna be at the top, things will have changed inevitably. Who knows in which direction, but things will have changed because things keep changing and they keep evolving. So. It doesn't matter what's happening now. If you look at what's happening now and you go, oh, well, this isn't what I'm like at all. Don't change to be like them. Be what people are going to like next. You know, be yourself. Mm. Anyway, that's, that's my, my small piece of advice.
0: That's, great. that's, that's brilliant because we have a lot of, uh, of other comedians that listen to this as well and it's very sage advice. Yeah, it is. It's very good. Yeah. Take that on board, won't they? I'm yeah. sure. Pretty much what I took from that is it's the small victories in the never-ending battle.
2: It is, mate, and you know you learn more from your fuck ups than you learn from getting it right. But you want to get it right more often than you fuck it up. I guess. <laughs> that? being there, being there.
1: That's life, though, isn't it? I yeah. suppose. <laughs> like I say, thanks, I suppose so.
0: thanks again for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, that's yep. a pod. <laughs> thanks a lot. Uh, thanks.
1: Cheers, man. Right. Thank, Thank, Thank you.
2: Bye. bye. bye.